An Instagram post gets an unexpected boost. A TikTok catches in the algorithm. Sometimes that's all it takes to launch someone into internet fame. But then what? This Blew Up is a new podcast documentary that reveals how social media stardom is made. It's a different kind of fame that's not always as glamorous as it looks. From Spotify and the Ringer Podcast Network, I'm Alyssa Bereznak. You can listen to This Blew Up on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com, Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Pondering the Bagel with Tom. Oh, the paradox of the bagel. Tis crunchy yet soft. Tis filling yet has a hole. Tis a vehicle for spreads, but only travels from toaster to plate. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. All right, welcome back, everybody. Uh, my special guest this week is a person whose pod I've appeared on many times, and I've always had so much fun. And I always say to myself, why am I not doing this more? <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. And I know, and I thought, I got to have him back on my pod. I think you run a couple of years ago with the guys. And uh, he does, you know, just one of the best pods out there uh, from Crooked Media. You know him from Love It or Leave It, Pod Save America, Mr. John Lovett. Welcome back to... Black on the air, my friend. Thanks for having me. Good to see you, Larry. Good to see you, too. I think I had you guys on in my early days of the pod, I think. It was a while ago, yes. you know. Yes. T- talking about stuff and everything. Yeah, you know? we were, and uh, John and I, I believe, during the pandemic, we did the Peacock show. Oh, yeah, that's right. Of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which, that, that was a lot of fun, you yeah. know. God, you know what? I have no sense of time, John. Just none. No, it really, uh, well, I think, um, you know, Seasons change while you're in your house, but you don't notice. Yeah. You know? All kinds of seasons, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. How, um, now, how long have you been doing Love It or Leave It? How many years now? Well, we started in mid-2017. Uh-huh. So we have been doing it for six years. Wow. It just went by like that, right? Well, yeah. It's, it's this... Um, it's the longest... You know, pod, doing Pod Save America and Love It or Leave It, it's the longest job I've ever had. Yeah. And it's, That's, it's, you know, you don't, and when you start something, yeah. you don't think I'll be doing this in six years, especially because we, we started in this moment of crisis. Right. Right uh, after, right after the election of Trump. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, um, wild six years, you know, time flies when democracy's yeah. falling <laughs> <Yeah>. apart. <laughs> when democracy is <laughs> having fun with us. Yeah. Uh-huh. Do you remember what your what those initial goals were? Uh, were you trying to clap back in those days? Do you think like being that voice in the wilderness, so to speak? Well, the good the the good news is we wrote it down and published it on the internet, so uh-huh. we do know we do remember what we were what why we started it. Yeah, and it what basically in the run up to the twenty sixteen election. John Favreau, Tommy Vitor, Dan mm-hmm. Pfeiffer, myself, we all had kind of, you know, gone in different directions mm-hmm. adjacent to politics, but not in politics anymore. And in the run up to the election, John and Dan started a podcast for The Ringer that Tommy and I joined, and it was basically just a hobby. But I do think that the couple years we had spent outside of politics, there was this real draw. Mm-hmm. And missing feeling of being kind of part of mm-hmm. part of the debate, just part of campaigns. That's all where we had all had come from. And throughout that election, we talked about how much of an emergency, not just Trump represented, but the fact mm-hmm. that someone is obviously <laughs> despicable and unqualified could get within a hundred miles of the White House represented a deeper rot in politics, in media, in culture, in the economy. Mm-hmm. And so after he won, we we just felt like we couldn't go back to what we had been doing, especially because what I had been doing was um, having uh, extreme not success, not failure in TV writing, <laughs> just really riding that that riding sure. that wake 
between success and failure. But uh, we we talked about what had made us so frustrated, not just as people who'd been in politics, but as news consumers. And we did feel like there was this missing progressive voice Mm -hmm. that treated politics less like a game Mm -hmm. that was serious without being self-serious and that communicated with people like they were participants instead of just observers. The, 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 all the news we consume for the most part, the, 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 and it can be excellent. This is not a criticism of it as uh, in all its forms. It's like there's um, incredible journalism in every form, there's incredible journalism on cable news, even though everybody likes to bash cable news, mm-hmm. uh, and, it, and and across you know you know investigative journalism. There's there's tons of good reporting and good journalism, but on the whole, it covers politics as if everybody watching is an alien with mm-hmm. binoculars on the Earth, trying to figure <laughs> out what those people down there are going to do. Yeah, and we're not observers; we're frustrated participants, and especially at a moment like that when people felt so despondent, we wanted to answer their anxiety and fear mm-hmm. with something yeah. they could do. Just here's what you can do. And and we wanted to demonstrate, we wanted to be happy warriors right. because there was so, there were so- I mean, Not morose deliverers of the bad no, news, right? Yeah. No, and, and, mm-hmm. and just that, that, that being, a, being deeply worried about what's happening mm-hmm. to the country, being scared, angry, frustrated, Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that does not mean you have to approach every topic like a dirge. Right. And you, it's okay to joke. It's okay to laugh. You, you know, mm-hmm. there's this thing, there's this, uh, how could you joke at a time like this? Well, it's always a time like this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's always a time like this. Always, right. always, always. As we're talking today, we just went through a news cycle in which there were multiple mass shootings in California. We've Crazy. seen in the last 24 hours, two horrific videos of despicable, awful violence directed at people who had d- did nothing to deserve it, spread yeah. wild like wildfire on the internet. It's always a time like this. So always. yeah, we're gonna yeah. joke through it. And like and that and that was permission for people to to kind of join the fight in a way that didn't feel like a slog because the most important thing we had to do, not just the last five years, but ongoing, is not get despondent and not give up and not uh, get so tired and bored and frustrated and immiserated by politics that you turn off. And so that that's sort of what led us to do it. And that mission has not gotten less important, even with Trump's absence. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's smart too, because the starting in the early nineties through the nineties and the early aughts, that's when right wing radio really was in its heyday, you know? And I remember the left never could equal the fervor or the the dedicated listening that 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 it had it kind of was in its moment during that time and you know and rightly so uh, because you know the media itself does lean a bit more left so it was harder for voices on the left to craft out a distinctive voice that was seemed like it was going against something you know yeah you know and uh and when it did it did seem like like liberals just have a habit of being you know anxious and sad <laughs> You know, it's sad and there's bad news coming, you know, and that sort of thing where the right, at least with Limbaugh and stuff, it was more of a of a warrior charge type of mentality. We have to fight against these forces of bad, you know, so it kind of people were charged listening to it as opposed to people were filled with anxiety listening to it, I think was the, if I can look at the biggest difference and I'm just, of course I'm over exaggerating, but I think it was podcasts that really allowed the left to find a a medium that really worked. You know, I I think that's true in terms, in terms of advocacy and having a team talk, I guess you could say, you know, when air America radio started, I had just graduated college and I was so excited about it that I bought a radio. (laughs) I bought a radio and I was, I was, I just moved to New York after college and I was like a, I was a temp at that time. And so I I didn't have work that day. And so I bought a radio and I remember, I think it launched that day. And I was so excited for the Al Franken show because I'd read all of Al Franken's books. We got our side now. Come on. Yeah, it's happening. Air American Radio. And and the whole premise of the first episode of the Al Franken show is that he had Ann Coulter in a closet. It's like a comedy bit or something? Yeah, it was just, he had, I think B.B. Newworth played Ann Coulter. Oh, okay. For the whole pilot of, of the Al Franken show. But yeah, there was, I think the, um, it's hard to have this conversation because obviously Rush Limbaugh, despicable. 
goes without saying. Allow, mm-hmm. I've gone on the record. Despicable. Mm-hmm. But you also, for a lot of people who are uh, really enamored of his views, he's mm-hmm. super entertaining. Same for Trump. Right. He right. wasn't, and you know, their vice obviously is a lot of hate and a lot of fear mongering. But on our side, there's a vice of, I think, yes, anxiety and sort of negativity, but also kind of piousness. Self-importance sometimes that makes it a little too self-serious, I guess you could say. Sometimes. Yeah, and, and just inaccessible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sometimes. Not all the time, but just... Of course, yeah. We're that, talking about the, the worst of it is what we're yes, talking of about. Course, yeah, of yeah. course, of course, of mm-hmm. course. And then what was exciting about something like Air America Radio, which obviously in the end didn't work, was that they were trying to... They were, everybody's been grappling with this for a long time, but you're right. Yeah. Like, there wasn't an audience in part because there wasn't a villain. The mainstream media was such a great villain. Exactly. The right. the main, the, That's just, exactly And right. by the way, and like, you know, of course they found... like. Partly the reason conservative radio has been so successful is they lost so many fights. You know, they lost the corporation. <laughs> right. it's, like, it's like, who yes. are their enemies now? Baseball, football, yeah. Facebook, Google, like yeah. every, you know, Nike. Like it just, the schools, the government, mm-hmm. the media. It's like, well, when you've waged these culture battles for 50 years and lost every single one of them, yeah, you know, there's a lot of enemies to choose from. It's harder for the left. Yeah, they had to keep refining and redirecting, you know, what that enemy was. It is, that is interesting. And I think because of the success of Fox News, believe it or not, sorry, Fox News, but you in many ways became the mainstream media in some ways, you know, because of the, the amount of people that viewed Fox News. They kept calling mainstream media the media elite, not realizing that that's what they were turning into. And now, like John Stewart was the first one to use that as a target, you know, yeah. and to really kind of undress you know, what was being delivered there and what people were kind of just swallowing wholesale on that side, which I, I think that kind of opened the door to a different type of left criticism, you know. It's also, I think, a credit to their um, sophisticated malevolence <laughs> that at a, t- <laughs> at a time in which they controlled Congress yeah. and the White House and these platforms dominating Facebook obviously dominating cable news, dominating the radio. Every day they were under assault, every day on that channel, despite all their power, despite all their victories, exactly. despite all their control. It was just another day of grievance and another day in mm-hmm. which they they were t- warning their viewers that they were losing everything, every yeah. day. And then still boasting about their viewership. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like boasting that, yeah, most of the Americans listen to us. And yet somehow we're underdogs. Like, well, how are you having it both ways? You know? Yeah. I do think that's part of, I think, why 2017 and, and, and throughout, and even I think still now, there's this feeling that the deck is stacked against progressives. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe that was always true, but I do think that that's been a kind of animating force the last few years that like, man, you know, we, that, that a system this broken mm-hmm. that could allow people like Trump to win with voter suppression and this sort of noise and chaos in the media that we are, we do feel like underdogs that we Mm -hmm. do feel like it's harder for us. And I do think that that is motivating for people. Why, when you say the deck is stacked, what do you mean by that? Well, we have won the popular vote in the last, (laughs) in, in, uh, every one of the last few elections. And yet we've still managed to lose the courts. Uh, we are, Mm -hmm. the deck is stacked against us in the Senate. We've seen in places like Wisconsin right now that that state legislature is so gerrymandered that the only question is whether or not we can stop a supermajority. We've seen successful efforts to restrict voting access throughout the Mm -hmm. South. We've seen, uh, you know, just even in in a state like New York, there's a sense that we couldn't manage to to have a Democratic Party that was able to uh, uh, draw districts and compete in a way that Republicans compete in a, mm-hmm. and that may very well have cost us the house. That may have been the difference between, you know, leader Hakeem Jeffries and speaker Hakeem Jeffries. So, mm-hmm. and, and I think this is, I think a harder part of it, which is, and I think this is an unhealthy attitude, honestly, but I do think that there's a lot of progressives who think, man, if the news was fair, if people really understood what the policies were, if people really understood what was going on, it mm-hmm. wouldn't be this hard. Mm-hmm. That that if we if if there wasn't so much noise, if there wasn't so much misinformation, if the if the media covered actual policy debates for what they are, if the media was honest about what Republicans are actually trying to do, 
that we would win every time. Now, I don't mm-hmm. think that that's true, but I do think that's a sense people have. And I think sometimes that that's really is sort of because people aren't sure how to indict voters, <laughs> they'd rather mm-hmm. indict the people that inform voters. Well, and it's a dangerous argument because it can be an elitist argument. It's saying, yeah. well, you guys are too dumb to understand what's really going on. Yeah. That's why yeah. this is happening. You know? Yeah. Well, it goes back to the piousness. <laughs> it does, <laughs> right. I think, a little right. bit. <laughs> because there are feel like, that way sometimes. Right. Because they'll fall back in the argument like, but are we wrong? It's like, no, motherfucker, it's not that you're wrong. Your method is is faulty. Yeah, yeah that's right. That's it's right. not the right or wrong. It's politicking. It's different. I mean, you worked for a brilliant politician, you know? Yeah. Uh, Bill Clinton, I thought, was a brilliant politician, too, where they understood it's not just the issue. It's how you communicate the issue, you know? Like Clinton, I feel your pain, you know? <laughs> you know, the way he communicated issues, I felt was brilliant. Reagan, I felt the reason why Obama talked about Reagan sometimes when people were mad at him for saying it, I always felt he was talking about his methodology, not his ideology, you know, of course, yeah. his, his ability to connect to his constituency, to the people who supported him. He always connected on the simplest of emotive, you know, which people can dismiss as, you know, empty or whatever, but that's part of politicking is how do you relate to people? So, they're, let me put it this way, like they're, ener- like they're, they're energized to be supporting you. You know, they're, they're more than just intellectually deciding on an issue. Like you're their candidate. You know what I mean? That kind of, uh, uh, yeah. the difference between people rushing to the polls and people go, oh yeah, that's right. Tomorrow, next week we have to vote, you know? Yeah. There's just in, as you're talking about it, it just sort of feels like there's at least two pieces to it. One, mm-hmm. obviously, is just persuasion. The, right. the sort of persuasion is sort of a lost art. And mm-hmm. um, the fact that there's this sense, I think in part because of social media, in part because of cable news, that mm-hmm. basically- And people you're, seem divided in on their sides already. So it's like, what are you going to persuade them to, right? Right, uh, because there's mm-hmm. because the biggest divide is not, I mean, obviously there's incredible divides between super engaged left and the super engaged right. But there's a-, a there's a rhetorical divide that's bigger between people that pay a lot of attention and people who don't. Mm-hmm. And I think the people who pay a lot of attention think sometimes can lose touch a little bit with how to talk about issues in a way that's not just about performing for your side, but actually making people who aren't sure or who maybe have a soft <laughs> a soft attachment to the other side, mm-hmm. making them feel, making them feel welcome. The first step on the way to making them convinced, right. That just sort of openness. And that's something I think Bill Clinton, you're right. Was, was very good people. You know, I think now people are look at some of the, the triangulation as a bad thing. And, you know, people can criticize moving to the center to win elections. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of times I'll join in the criticism, but mm-hmm. There was a way in which Bill Clinton, not just in what he said, but in his whole kind of mm-hmm. energy, his whole persona was making mm-hmm. people feel comfortable. Barack Obama had to do that in multiple ways, not least mm-hmm. which because he was black, obviously. But it's ironic that so Barack Obama defeats Hillary Clinton, becomes this force inside the Democratic Party by campaigning for change. That was the word, change, hope mm-hmm. and change. Right. And conveying that he understood how frustrated people were. Mm-hmm. But ironically, in the closing weeks of that election, when he's running against John McCain, part of the reason he was be able to come president was not because of how much change he represented, mm-hmm. but because there was something about him that made people feel really comfortable that he was stable and safe, that he understood the crisis we were in. I, 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 mm-hmm. sometimes, I think people don't, I, you can, that, that, that moment when the, when the, the economy was in free fall, when, when there was, when a congressional vote fails and the Dow cuts in half, and then John McCain suspending his campaign and unsuspending his campaign, there was a, there was a kind of a seriousness and responsibility that Barack Obama conveyed in everything he did. I think it's something he mm-hmm. had to do regardless. But mm-hmm. in the end, it wasn't just because he, I think, captivated people with inspiration and with this idea that we can have a different kind of political system. It was because he seemed 
so reliable, responsible, yeah. adult that ultimately is why he became president. And I think it really shows you how big of a mistake the Sarah Palin choice was for McCain. Yeah. Because no one thought McCain was didn't have the abilities to do the same, but the choice of Palin, I think for a lot of people created a lot of doubt in their minds. It's like, well, why would he choose someone like this? This doesn't make sense. It did. You know, I mean, she came out of the box. I'm really well with all that rhetoric and stuff. But once she, you know, people kind of saw there was really nothing there substantively, exactly like you're saying, because people forget that was an economic crisis happening yeah. in real time, you know, and with Obama choosing Biden on the other hand, you're right. That team, if you look at the team and not just the person, that team felt a lot more stable. Like, okay, this is the right team to be betting on right now. Yeah. And you look at like, it's sort of this mirror image of the, of the Reagan comparison, which is, you know, Reagan was able to convey this sort of optimism and kind mm -hmm. of, uh, 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 softness, even as they're pursuing, you know, massive tax cuts for the rich deregulation, ignoring the AIDS crisis, just sort of the most sort of, uh, uh rapacious right-wing policies, but with a smile mm -hmm. on his face. Mm -hmm. And then you have someone like, Joe Biden, who, because of his long time in politics, because of just sort of some ineffable qualities that he has, mm -hmm. not least of which is being an old white guy, no matter how hard they tried, they could not tag him as mm -hmm. some unhinged socialist. They just couldn't do it. It doesn't take. Yeah. In the same way that trying to do the same to Barack Obama didn't take. There's, right. some, there's a quality people see that they understand mm -hmm. and uh, that makes them resistant to those those labels and that was really powerful and really important no matter no matter what happened with Barack Obama's approval rating year after year up and down through mm -hmm. fights through recession his personal approval as a person forget job approval was really stable right people really did they liked him yeah and it always was yeah exactly yeah. that I always say the same you know it's funny going back to Reagan my mind goes back um just because I'm an old fart, you know, I remember stuff like this. <laughs> you know? But what's interesting is that Reagan's approval really wasn't that high. His approval of the economy, because we went into a recession like in those early 80s and interest rates were real high, you know, unemployment. It was just nasty. You know, that whole there was like a whole 12 year period that was just kind of nasty, you know, just stag stagflation. They used to call it back in those days. Yeah. And ironically, I think what turned Reagan around and this is going to sound weird was the assassination attempt. You know, when he was shot by Hinckley, he's in the hospital to say, who are the, are the doctors, Republicans or Democrats? You know, he's saying, he's making these jokes. Yeah, I and forgot to duck. Wasn't there like an I forgot I to forgot duck? I forgot to duck, yeah, stuff like that. But it's funny that that's what kind of turned a lot of people around on Reagan because people, yeah, his he beat... He beat Carter and all that stuff, but a lot of it was the Democrats were divided. People forget that Ted Kennedy ran against Carter, against yeah. his own party, and the Democrats were divided at that time, you know. But uh, it's funny that Reagan, to your point about Obama personally, it was Reagan's personally yeah. and not policy that really made the difference. And he runs against somebody like Mondale with no personality in 84. You know, Obama... In 12 runs against Romney, who he's competent, but basically, you know, not much of a, you can't, uh, Romney versus Obama, come on, personality wise, it's like, it's not even close, you know. It's like, and, everyone's, yeah, yeah, that yeah. Was, it was a very close election because Obama couldn't run on hope anymore. He was the status quo, but you're right. His basic like ability to me, you know, really, really was important in that election. And you couldn't use these, these arguments about him about othering him at that point, even though, of course, they always try. They try and they always try. And, yeah, yeah, Romney. Man, uh, everyone's revised their opinion of Romney, but forgets that Romney revised his opinion of Romney. Like Romney became, mm -hmm. they, they, people forget how kind of classless that Romney campaign was. There was so much, <laughs> there was just the no apologies tour. It was all a little, you know, the, yeah, the, yeah. the Trump, the Trump event, man. He's just awkward, Romney. Yeah, yeah. 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 I was never mad at him. I thought he was okay, but he was just as he was always a centrist Republican. He, he never really fit the Republican mode of what they really wanted, you know, because by the time Romney got there, they were on the Palin type of train. They were done with those centrists. He just, he just got in that position, but they really wanted somebody like they really wanted like a Trump 
in twelve. Yeah. You know, uh, Palin, Palin. You know the the scene in Jurassic Park where like one dinosaur <laughs> comes over the crest, and then they yeah. realize that it's a whole flock. Sarah Palin was like the first dinosaur over the That's crest, hilarious. and she figured it out too, right? Because she was like out of the gate. She gave that uh, that speech at the convention. People were really phenomenal. nervous about her. I was there. It just seemed. I was. It seems like there was this moment where basically she had these two paths ahead of her. One of them was reading the briefing book mm-hmm. <laughs> and one of them and one of them was becoming a celebrity. And she exactly. just she just chose the celebrity. She just is like, "No, mm-hmm. no thank you. I say no thank you to the briefing book. I'm going to try this. This seems more fun." Yeah. Uh and it seems like it's so funny that she opened the door to this really bad form of Republican in my mind, you know, cuz to me Palin is the ancestor I guess that's the right term of now what I call the uh, conspiracy theorist Republican that, you know, Trump really birthed fully, you know, and it yeah. is not just a small part of the party. Like if you look at the whole Paul Pelosi thing, you know, that happened with immediately people like are making things up, you know, and, uh, you know, the worst extremes of this stuff that are that are believed by a lot of mainstream Republicans that are just made up things now, you know, just complete full blown conspiracy stuff now, which used to be fringe, but it's now like mainstream, it seems. Yeah, well, I, yeah, it's, um, you know, I think some of it is politicians, you know, they both are they're both are reflecting the culture and making the culture mm-hmm. and they're like raptors testing the fences. My second Jurassic Park analogy of the day. <laughs> yeah, but and that that was from uh, the book Jurassic Park. Actually, um, testing the fences. I actually, yeah, yeah. See me. I read the book and saw the movie. But uh, yeah. the book made more of a point of the raptors being intelligent and testing the fences and going back and forth. I thought that was great. So yeah, oh, there you go. Listen, obviously, <laughs> listen. I didn't have a lot of friends. Obviously, thirteen. But I don't remember when that book came out. But the thirteen-year-old me was reading the hell out of Jurassic Park. The look on my English teacher's face when I was like, "Can I do a book report on Jurassic Park 2? <laughs> <laughs> She's like, "No, you're gonna have to you have to pick something else." You're gonna have to Michael pick Crichton, else. he should be in every institution, you know. Yeah, I stuff. agree. I agree. That's how I learned about airplane crashes from Michael Crichton. There I wrote that go. book about airplane crashes. Still think about it. Andromeda Strain. He came out of the. I mean, his early one was that, and you talk about COVID. You know, predicting COVID and that kind of stuff. Okay, picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. But at least I knew they were there just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side by side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. Let me ask you about Biden. What's your what's your basic review of Biden at this point? Like, I I think I told you that you know, when I did your show, I felt he was a president in search of a, a presidency in search of a president, and I meant that in terms of you know him being a figure that people are drawn to or get behind or that type of thing. I think he is just the person who. Like he staved off Trump 
and he's there representing our party right now. Well, I, I think that's a little bit unfair. Mm-hmm. You I realize that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I just think like, I think in every way, when, whether it is spoken aloud or not, every conversation about Joe Biden at this point is about how old he is. Every single conversation. That's all mm-hmm. it is. If Joe Biden were 20 years younger, 10 years younger, five years younger, there would be no question. There'd be no debate. He would be an inc- viewed as, I think correctly, an incredibly successful president. How old is he ha- right now? Uh, I think he's um, 275 years old. Okay, uh, I thought he was he 274, was, sorry. No, he's, he's a <laughs> little bit old. Well, obviously, look, he was 270 when he started this campaign. He already seemed old, you know, because mm-hmm. he was like talking about things like what it was like when he saw the first airplane. <laughs> <laughs> How exciting that was. He's 100 years old. He sees the first airplane. Is he 80? He's 80. He just turned 80. He just turned 80. Oh, but, Biden is 80. Yeah. Wow. And, and so it's okay. like, Let's just see. It's old. So you put aside the age for a second and you look at this and you're like, well, and and a year ago would have been a different conversation, but in like an incredibly successful legislative record, just Mm -hmm. against all odds, getting a massive climate bill through, getting uh, an infrastructure bill through, um, getting a host of other bills through that should have been all but impossible, some bipartisan, some with just Democratic votes. Uh, defeat, obviously, even just simply by defeating Trump, to your point, he mm-hmm. achieved the most important thing that everybody kind of was looking him to do. His mm-hmm. argument on the politics has been right. You know, Ron Klain, mm-hmm. chief of staff, is about to leave, said, like, never underestimate just how much Joe Biden is underestimated. And mm-hmm. and I do think that that's true. It's a it's a sec, it's a derivative. It's the it's the second derivative of of underestimation. It's like the mm-hmm. it's the he's he's underestimated and how he's underestimated. And I try to remember that too because I was with somebody that underestimated Joe Biden. I underestimated as a candidate. Then I underestimated him uh, after his first year in office. I mean, he's he's incredibly successful as a president, as a progressive president again, with a with not a great not a great hand. He's played it incredibly well. As Bush um, would say, he's misunderestimated. He's misunderestimated. <laughs> and the sort of political argument for, for Joe Biden was really, really strong that, mm-hmm. that you know, the, the point that we were talking about earlier, you know, early in the 2020 primaries, there was this question about, well, what would happen when Joe Biden faced the full wrath of the right-wing machine that every Democrat, when they put, were put through this ringer, would come out the other side with a, a approval rating in the toilet, really negative. And that just didn't happen. His numbers did, that didn't happen. His, mm-hmm. his numbers in Wisconsin didn't collapse. He wins, you know? And so if you just take away the age issue, we wouldn't, it would be obvious that of course Joe Biden is going to be the nominee again, mm-hmm. right? It would be obvious that everybody would want him to be the nominee again, mm-hmm. but he's 80 years old. And, yeah. and it's both, I think, an issue on its own. And it makes us wonder like what, what kind of party is this that that we don't have that like this is the person that we're still rallying behind yeah. despite his success despite how much he is loved inside the party despite how good of a president uh uh he has been that we look around at this at this moment and say no that we have to this is the person we need to stick with this is this is even when he said himself he was running to pass the torch to a new generation and and it's mm-hmm. a hard thing to talk about because if Joe Biden is the nominee, we're going to fight like hell to make sure he wins because he's done a good job. And if he is our nominee, we will have the most. We will have to do everything we can to make sure that he wins and and make the best argument we can for him. But I do think that like this, this is what I think weighs on this whole debate. It's just always about this. Why do you think there's been so much trouble in regenerating? I guess <laughs> the Democratic Party. And when you look at Congress, there. God bless Diane Feinstein, by the way, for finally deciding, I think at 90 to move aside. But God has bless she her. decided to move aside? I, I mean, know, she's, exactly. Has she, well, look, like everyone's just going to act as if she's moving aside. But even this week, she said she's not going to de- officially decide until next year, which makes no sense. I mean, she will not be the nominee at this point, but she's sort of not, she's sort of oddly, uh, it's bizarre. It's bizarre. Are they holding on too long? Like, what's going on? Like, I don't understand this. Like there's it's and it's because it's not just her, you know, I mean, I'm happy that Pelosi stepped aside and is allowing, you know, once new blood to come in. I thought that was really I thought her timing was good. All that. Yeah. 
perfect. That's how you do it, you know. Um, but I think there is a problem with we we just finished with Obama and it felt like we went backwards, even though Biden turned out to be the right person to be Trump. Yes. But did we, you know, get the right uh, player, but we gave away all our draft picks. You know? Well, it's, I <laughs> like, feel like there's like, hey, we yeah. got LeBron, but it costs us five first round draft picks. <laughs> we have no future now. We better win the championship right now. I have to use my Laker analogy there. No, no, and I and I'm and using context clues. I know what you mean, but the mm-hmm. um, <laughs> right. Sorry, it's Jared, right. Yeah. It's, no, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. No, it's. I feel like there's two. So first, it's like, why do we live in a gerontocracy? I, I, it's a hard question. Um, something happened with Gen X. I, I don't know. Maybe it was grunge, but they didn't step up. <laughs> so like, I don't know what happened. Uh, but but there was a oh, there was man. a something happened. Like you know, something happened with Gen X. That's funny. And it's a problem I can't solve. I've already picked too many fights with every other generation. But yeah. I do think with the like specific issue of like there is a Democratic bench, right? There mm-hmm. are sure. there's of there's course. There's Josh Shapiro. There's Wes Moore. There's there's Gretchen Whitmore. Mm-hmm. Gretchen Whitmer. There's, but they need that opportunity to emerge. You know. Well, to, well, I think I think know. well. So like, you, it's not a, you. You make your opportunity to emerge. Sure. Like we there's a <laughs> the idea that we all know who the former mayor of uh, uh, what city was he mayor of in Indiana? Whatever. Talk about Buttigieg. I'm talking about Pete. But like. Mm-hmm. Pete made his opportunity. He was a right. mayor from Indiana right, he and he became a household name because yeah. he ran for president and not, not just that he ran for president, but he ran for president and he demonstrated that he had something special, mm-hmm. that he brought something to the table that made him exciting to a lot of people, mm-hmm. uh, extremely intelligent, ex- like just extremely thoughtful and made a name for himself. He made his mm-hmm. opportunity. Mm-hmm. A bunch of people ran against Joe Biden. They all lost. Some of them were older. Some of them were, you know, you had Bernie, you had Warren, you had, mm-hmm. you had Biden. You also had, uh, you know, I think you had, you had people like Amy Klobuchar. Then you had people like Swalwell. You had a lot of people who ran. Pete Buttigieg sure. himself. Mm-hmm. And so you had a lot of people run. Kamala ran, and and the party chose Joe Biden. So in a in what you're looking for is a primary against a sitting president. If Joe Biden had decided not to run, suddenly there would have been a bench. The the there's a part of what's happening right now, which is negative partisanship that everyone understands that the most important thing about a presidential election is not electing a Republican, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's the most important thing. The most important thing is stopping the Republican party, that the stakes feel total. They feel existential. That's what Trump did. That's how Trump's transformation of the party has transformed how presidential election feels. Everything comes down to winning. And Mm -hmm. what that thing, what that, that does is I think it, a really reduces people's risk tolerance, mm-hmm. um, and B it makes people really anxious about the Ted Kennedy comparison you made a few minutes ago. Nobody wants to challenge Joe Biden right. and right. risk being not. the one who loses, exactly, and then brings Joe Biden down. And then the question is, well, why is Joe Biden looking at this landscape and deciding that he should continue, that he should mm-hmm. run? Well, A he feels up to it, and B he looks at the political landscape and says, this didn't change very much in the last four years. Mm -hmm. And the same argument for why I had to be the person then is why I need to be the person now. Now you can make a case against that, but the, 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 the only real way to defeat that argument is to run against Joe Biden and beat him. But because of, I think the, the fears about, about the stakes and the fears about what that might do, uh, if, whether you succeed or not, I think has sort of cleared out the field and put us in this position. So like the gerontocracy issue, I think is why Joe Biden probably was in part, in part is why Joe Biden became president, but it's a little bit different now. It's not mm-hmm. just that. So it's a tough situation. And like, I, I don't know. I don't know. It's hard. I think your average, not that involved in politics person who generally supports Joe Biden, I think the age is a factor, especially if he's going to be running against somebody a lot younger, you know, who may be talented and, you know, may not pose that type of threat to a lot of people in the middle who's who where they might view Trump as a, you know, this loose cannon at this point, you know, they're like, I wouldn't vote for him. But if they saw somebody who next to Biden, because the elections, it's someone next to someone yeah. else. Right. It's not just the issue, um, which is I worry about tr- it, too. Yeah. By the way, which is how Trump beat Hillary, you know, there was so much softening of Hillary by all that Benghazi stuff, I thought, and he had emails, all that stuff about corruption and all that, 
you know, and Trump looked like that warrior, you know, to a lot of people. And I'm speaking in the broadest of terms, of course, you know, um, cause people still didn't expect that to happen. You know? uh, so like, no, I look, I, I, I worry, I worry about it too. I, it's, it's, you know, Trump versus Biden, it's two old men going at it again. Yeah. I think a lot of, a lot Biden of these issues melt that. away. I, I think, think Biden yeah, wins I that, hope so. Yeah. I hope so. I think so too. What do you think happens if Biden steps aside though, which I think could be a possibility. It's probably a far fetched at this point, but you never know. What if God, you know, God forbid there'd be a health scare or something like that. What his wife just went through something. What if his wife said, look, Joe, you had a good run. This has been a good run in politics. Let's just, let's let some other people fight it out. Like who's, yeah. who got next? I think it's a, I think it's a, um, I'm going to use a, a, a sports metaphor. If you'll bear with me, I think it's yeah. um, something called a jump ball. Um, so <laughs> term I've heard, right? That's because the ball yes. goes up in the air and anybody can get it famously. Yes. But, but it's between two people. You don't do a jump ball with like five people. Okay. Well, is there a sport where there's a jump ball with five no. people that we can <laughs> no, refer to? Unfortunately not. Well, no. then, then there's no analogy, right. but I do think, right. I do think suddenly, like, I think you'll have a bunch of people would, would run. Mm-hmm. Um, but right now it just doesn't seem like anybody out there is like making, it just doesn't seem like anybody out there is making the signals or putting together the team or doing the things you do if you're planning mm-hmm. to mount a campaign because Joe Biden has basically indicated that he's going to run and nobody wants to challenge a sitting Democratic president, I think for good reason. So uh, it's, you know, I'm not really, we're not, uh, we're not in the prediction business anymore. We'll see. Mm-hmm. We'll see. Do you think Kamala could be that person that people could get behind since she is the vice president? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't think, um, I think the fact that that's not obviously true, right? It's not obviously true that it would be her. Mm-hmm. I think it tells you that it would be a real fight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because because once again, people are going to have their, uh, you know, their agendas and all that stuff. You know. Yeah. You know, uh, did you see that Paul Pelosi tape by any chance? The videotape. I do not watch videos like this. Uh-huh. I yeah. have never watched them. I don't watch them. I didn't watch Paul Pelosi. I do not watch any of the body cam footage I do not watch or consume. I sometimes read the descriptions, Mm -hmm. um, read reporting about them, but I just, there's something to me really there's, there's, and I'm not begrudging people who believe we should watch them or share them. I'm not criticizing people who feel differently, but for me, there's something wrong. There's something off Mm -hmm. about how easy it is and how widely consumed these videos are how easy it is Mm -hmm. to see them and how uh, how often people watch them and and how being able to see them becomes a way of demonstrating you understand them and Mm. i don't know there's a there's a there's a vulgarity to it that makes me and also simply i just i don't what is it that i need to see Mm -hmm. like what is the position you'd like me to hold that i don't hold because Mm -hmm. i haven't seen these videos i don't know what it is so i don't know why i'd put that in my mind and also there's a decent look. We were all a bit desensitized to violence because we live in a violent country. Mm-hmm. But for every video we watch, I, we're all human, and each one is less shocking. So what? What, yeah. what is the value to it? What is the value of this sharing? I don't. I don't know. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Do you think that desensitivity to violence or those types of things is kind of uh, affected, like how we're even engaging with Ukraine and that kind of thing? You know, it's. Something, you know, in the first parts of those things, I feel like people are engaged in a certain way that as time goes on, it just becomes another report, you know, or it's so far away. You talk about how binging fiction changes how we consume fiction, Mm -hmm. like how binging a television show is a different experience than watching something week to week. Mm-hmm. That maybe you, you that you maybe you you appreciate it less. You talk about it less. It sticks with you less. You don't remember it as much. Like, well, what happens when we're all binging the news? Mm-hmm. You know, binging on con- there's a way in which the, the that the news used to be more like linear, and now it is processed faster and consumed quicker, and we move on to new topics. Not because not just because people have short attention spans, but because if you're, if you're covering something hour to hour instead of day to day or week to week, by the third or fourth hour, you're on to the third or fourth version of the story. 
you're on the meta analysis, you're on the you're on the opinion, you're on what it all means, you're on mm-hmm. what's next, and there's just less time on what happened. You know, when the when the Roe decision came down, it was shocking to me when the Dobbs decision came down overturning Roe. I mean, mm-hmm. it was really right. shocking to me how quickly people went to. Well, if they've overturned, if they've overturned Roe, gay marriage could be next. If they've overturned Roe, contraception could be next. It's like, hey, everybody, this stinks. What's happening right now is really bad. It's mm-hmm. really bad. This, this right now, stay on this for one second. Just stay on this right. for one second because what's happening right now is bad. Yes, mm-hmm. it could lead to something worse. That happened throughout the Trump years too. Wow. Yeah. Trump really could mean America is heading down the road to fascism. Maybe so, right? Maybe he is. Maybe so. It's right. bad right now. Right. It's bad exactly. right now. Can we just stay right here? Can you just stay with me for one second on what's happening right now? So like that, that is my, that is my sort of worry about how we consume the news. Man, I don't know. How do you feel about it? How do you feel about seeing these videos circulating the way that they do? Oh, uh, I think a lot of it, I'm conflicted like you in different ways too. Some of it I feel is exploitative in ways that don't help. I think sometimes it is necessary to know these things are going on that, you know, thank goodness, like with the kid in Memphis, you know, thank goodness there was a, a camera on that um, post or something and not yeah. just the body cams, which can be misleading, but there was kind of, I'll call it an objective camera that really allowed us to see the brutality of what really happened. You know, it's important for us to know, that kind of unvarnished truth for these things in order for certain types of change to happen. But then your brain, you know, you don't know what that is after a while too. The, to me, the, the visceral effect of seeing something doesn't always lead to the right remedy. You know, yeah. I think that's where we're stuck so much, you know, and even with something like Ukraine, I guess I brought it up because like I, I don't know in my mind the right way to go with something like this too. You know, I mean, Putin, Putin, of course, is somebody who is very dangerous right now, you know, and I, so far it feels like we're doing the right thing in our approach, you know, and I don't understand the, the real, um, viral opposition to it that some groups have. It doesn't make sense to me. I understand cautiousness and that type of thing, but I also feel like I don't think it's easy for people to relate to because of of how we are inundated with so much violence and these issues and that type of thing. So our relationship to to the world and these events, I think it's changed in ways because of social media and the constant bombardment of it. I, I don't even think we can measure it yet. Like the effects of that are yet to be <laughs> yet to be seen, you know. You know, I and I see that I see that there's sometimes a kind of like nihilism that creeps in because we've, how many times can our conscience be shocked? Right, right, exactly. How many times can our conscience be shocked? And then you say, well, then maybe the body cam footage doesn't matter. Maybe these things don't matter. And then you say, well, hold on a second. These cops are charged with murder before Mm -hmm. the tape was released. If there was no body cam footage, you see in the video, I mean, I haven't watched the video, but I've I've read descriptions of the video to be clear, Mm -hmm. but- they just, they basically are in real time coming up with a story. Right. Before body camps, that would have been the story. It would have been another, it would have Absolutely. been another example. And so it's, it's a, but that at the same time, yes, look, look, this happened even though it was recorded. This happened even though it was on video. So it's all very, it is hard to understand. It is hard. It is hard to process. Like we're, we go through these and then there's something there's something about what happens when the national attention focuses on one example yeah. that I understand why it's, it's, it's right. It, it does sort of concentrate us on an issue. And I do think the reason you focus on a story like this is because it is a stand-in for a larger set of mm-hmm. events. That's right. But then at the same time, we gather together to focus on specific incidences this this example of brutality, a, a mass shooting, and then the kind of like quotidian violence, the epidemic of gun suicides, the mm-hmm. the the epidemic of drug overdoses, the kind of violence that is not considered violence, the 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 like the daily toll of living in this violent place doesn't get the same level of attention, and it isn't always clear to me why. Why are 20 bodies in one room 
mm. more newsworthy than 20 people shooting themselves because they have no hope and, 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 and life and sense of purpose in 20 mm. different apartments. Like why is the 20 in one room more newsworthy than 20 people in desperation and hopelessness killing themselves in 20 different places? And it's not right. It's not, it's, and it, to me, this is why I think I get so, I don't even know how to express it, but why I worry when we concentrate on these sort of what are, dis, disgusting and awful videos of, of, of death and, and mayhem and murder, because in a way, the fact that we only concentrate on these speaks to how anesthetized we already are, how comfortable we already are with mm -hmm. so much violence that it takes these things to shock us, which tells us that we're so far gone, things are so far broken that like, this is what we have to, this is what it takes to concentrate our attention. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's violence porn in many ways. Yeah. Um, going back to your roots, um, I appreciate you being on, John. <laughs> Some of this, and I, <laughs> I know I appreciate you being so, uh, so frank and everything too. You're such, um, there's a lot of levels to this John Levitt, guys. All right. Yeah. It's a, it, a it is also kind. And it's a yeah. comedy show. Here's the thing. It's also a comedy show. <laughs> yeah. No, but our show, wherever the conversation goes, it goes. Yeah. You yeah. Know, it's not necessarily, not necessarily comedy, depending on the conversation. But here's something. Here's a lighter question. You know, being as having been a speechwriter and everything, if you were <laughs> still a speechwriter, who would you want to write for today? What do you mean? Oh, who do like, I want to write for? Yeah. Like who's the candidate? And it doesn't matter if Biden's running or not, you know, who's, let's say it's wide open, because I assume it'd be a Democrat, not a Republican. But, uh, you know, just looking around, who would you like to say, you know what, I could, I would crush for that person. I could see me like being in there. That That's what I'm talking about right there. That's a good question. That's a really good mm -hmm. question. You know, I do like Josh Shapiro. You know, he does uh -huh. have a really great way about him. Um. And he is very smart. He's very like, you know, the, he's a kind of, he's very disciplined in a way that's uh -huh. good. And he has a sense of what he's trying to do and the kind of tone he's trying to strike. Um, but uh, it's, it's a hard, it's a hard one. It, it's part of the reason it's hard is because like, as a speechwriter, I've always felt like, you know, when you're, especially like at the White House or when you're writing kind of a big speech for someone like mm -hmm. Hillary Clinton, you feel a lot of pressure, right? Like, like a mm -hmm. lot of people are going to see this. A lot of people are going to hear this. And like, to me, the way I always dealt with that, especially when I was, you know, 25 and had no fucking idea what I was doing, <laughs> I would always think- That's when you do always, your best work, right? That is, yeah, that is. I would always <laughs> think to myself like, okay, my job is not to know as much as these people know. I haven't lived their lives. I don't have their experience. I'm not supposed to know what the audience wants or what the country wants or what the polls say. Mm -hmm. My job is to give them what they want, this politician. Mm -hmm. like my job mm -hmm. is to really think about what is the speech they want to give. Mm. And if I give them what they want, that's me doing my job. And it's their job to know what to say. It's their job to know how to, how to speak to an audience. And so I always found that like, you know, one question we would get asked all the time one question we get asked all the time as speechwriters is like, well, what if you don't agree? What if you disagree? Oh, and there's great a, question. And there's yeah. a, but there's a strange way in which it's sort of beside the point because mm -hmm. you're not thinking, how do I write something I really, you do a time, of course, you're like, how do I speak sure. to a deeper truth? How do I express something? But you're really thinking, how do I capture this person's voice? Right, and so exactly. to me, what's interesting about being a speechwriter is like, I've written policy speeches for Hillary Clinton. I've written campaign speeches for Barack Obama. Couldn't be more different, right? Mm. But the challenge isn't, which is the most fun to write. The challenge is kind of learning how to write in somebody else's voice and feeling Absolutely. like, oh, that's when I've really done it. And so like, you know, I've had moments where I felt like, oh, I'm really kind of, I really understand what Hillary Clinton wants in this speech mm -hmm. or kind of her voice. I've done this long enough. Same thing for, for President Obama. And so it's, it's interesting. I've never, and the truth is like, I never, I never, I, I, I've worked for two, I've been a speechwriter for two politicians I didn't look out at the world and say, who's the person I want to write for? I got fucking lucky at 23 sure. and got a job for Hillary Clinton. Sure. And then I apply, and then Barack Obama becomes president, and I basically get lucky again and get hired to be a speechwriter for, for, for Barack Obama. So sure. truly, honestly, you asking me who I'd want to write for, not only is it a hard question, it's a question I've never thought about in my entire life. But now you're John Lovett. You're not just 23 year old kid. You've somebody done it write before. For me. How about somebody writes for me? <laughs> there, Where's my oh. speech? Yeah, no, there, there, they exist. We have joke writers. But, uh, I've always, like, also, like, I, I love 
Elizabeth Warren's approach to policy. Mm. I love Katie Porter. You could crush for I, her. Oh, you would crush for Katie Porter. I love Katie Porter. I also like Adam you know, Schiff needs you though. That's the person. Who I, needs Adam you. Schiff, I, you know, there were moments in those impeachment trials where Adam Schiff mm-hmm. was like the best he'd ever been. And he yeah. gave such moving speeches. Like Adam Schiff, yeah. this West Hollywood vegan is making me cry. <laughs> you know, that's yeah. amazing. That's amazing. So yeah. There you go. Do you think uh, uh, if Obama were running today, he hadn't run before, do you think he could win in this climate? Yeah. Like running for the first time? Like he had never been president. And Obama's running, coming up, you know, with the climate we're in right now. Look, uh, you know, once in a generation talents only come along <laughs> once in a generation. Uh, mm-hmm. I, yeah, look, we, we, when we, we had Barack Obama on Pod Save America a couple months ago. And you're right. just like, it's, it's. Still got it? Oh, man. You're just like, like, there, it's just. Yeah, there's a re- look. There's a reason he became president. I think <laughs> is it just personal charisma? What do you think it is? There is no politician in public life that I have ever seen that can tell a story the way that he can tell a story about what's happening to the country mm-hmm. in a way that is honest. That I think is a bit more open than most politicians, mm-hmm. but at the same time, with a care and a discipline to know the bounds, to have a felicity with words mm-hmm. that manages to kind of be honest and challenging, mm-hmm. I think, while still being open to a big group of people. It's just very few people have that. And it's a natural, it's a, it's, it truly is like this sort of mix of his sort of, I think, his personal charisma, his experience, his, his, discipline as a human being. Like I just, Mm -hmm. there was this moment, I think during the Obama administration where people thought, oh wow, like, you know, this is the new democratic majority, right? There was all this optimism Mm -hmm. and it actually was, it turned out that no, in some ways, yes, obviously Barack Obama represented a new multicultural cosmopolitan Mm -hmm. America, but also in his success as a politician and his unique skills, hit a lot of weaknesses Mm -hmm. of what was happening to the Democratic Party that was evident in the fact that we were losing a lot of legislative races that was evident when we lost the House. And so I do think that his his unique set of talents actually helped overcome a lot of challenges we wouldn't discover um, until after he was gone. Yeah. He had a way of raising the bar, but you could imagine going into that bar and having a drink. And they- <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure, sure, <laughs> you know. sure. Uh, John, so much. Uh, I really appreciate having uh, this discussion with you. You're always so thoughtful and thanks, so Larry. Thanks for entertaining having me. at the same time. And love it or leave it. Um, are you guys going to do stuff on the road? Uh, yeah, we're going to go. Like? Love it or leave it. And Pod Save America are probably going to hit the road again this year at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, and you should, we, uh, like, love it or leave it is like a, what I, I love doing the live shows. It's really fun. Oh, and, yeah, they're um, great. It's a great way to like, like we do love or leave it live every week. And every week we get to have this great time with the crowd, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they really show up for you too. I mean, yeah, it was nice. packed, the one that I did. I mean, it's nice to know that there are Shut people up for who you. Are, no, <laughs> I don't think they knew I was going to be, a, but just to come out with that kind of energy and everything, you yeah. know, I thought that was fantastic, you know? Well, it, it speaks to like, there really is a community of people out there that are all. Yeah, I it's, agree. It's a nice thing to do the live shows because you're reminded that there's a lot of people feeling the same way that you're feeling about yeah. what's happening and, and for I, good and for ill, you can get together with them. And I think you could go to many, many parts of the country, some that might surprise you. And I, I honest to God will bet you that the same amount of people will come out with fervor like that too. You know? Oh, we have found like mm-hmm. sometimes the most excited and fun shows are yeah. in like kind of little blue enclaves in yeah. the reddest of States because it's I like, <laughs> yeah, here's like, it's like, Hey, we're everywhere, you know? Oh man, I did a special in Salt Lake City this in 2012. My Larry room was race, religion, and sex in Utah. It was gone. And the crowd that came out, it was one of the best crowds I have ever had. It was so fantastic. I'm like, Utah. Okay, Utah. I see you, Utah. <laughs> you know, nice, nice. It yeah, was so that's much cool. fun. Yeah. Uh, John, love it, everybody. Pod Save America. Love it or leave it. You know, it's good stuff out there. And you know, these next two years, we're going to need a lot of it. Yeah. 
Thanks yeah. again, John. Thanks. Good seeing you, Thanks, my friend. Larry. Good seeing you too.